Hi everyone, welcome to Weird Catastrophe. Today I'm going to be sharing an interview that I did with Jack Mitchell. He is the first producer of the NPR show All Things Considered. And in fact, he was one of the first, if not the first employees of NPR since its inception. And I interviewed him because I am currently writing an article critiquing NPR's news coverage and analysis. And I reached out to Dr. Mitchell because I saw that he had authored a book about the history of American public radio and NPR um, and writing about his time working at NPR and then also giving some thoughtful consideration to the various critiques that NPR gets from both the left and the right. And I wanted to get his sort of insider perspective to help flesh out that piece that I'm currently working on. Um, I think that he provided some very valuable perspectives about how NPR has changed since it first started back in the 70s and was able to give um, some thoughtful consideration to how NPR could improve its current programming. I was very glad that Dr. Mitchell was able to and willing to chat for a bit, and I hope you enjoy the interview. You were one of the first employees and the first producer of All Things Considered at NPR. That's right. Um, what is your view of kind of the average NPR radio listener, public radio listener? Um, who do you think tends to engage with their content. Sure. Yeah. Well, we know uh, various, you know, they, they take ratings and they do a lot of research, so they know exactly who it is. And uh, the answer are people who are uh, highly educated. That's the key. Uh, the more education you have, the more likely you are to listen. If you did not graduate from high school, you do not listen, period. And uh, if you have a master's or a PhD, you're almost certainly listen. So that's, that's the determination. And do you currently work with um, Wisconsin Public Radio? No, I left there about 20 years ago. Uh, so I'm not with it anymore. I've, I went into, the, into teaching. And so I left in 19... 1997, I think it was. So it's over 20 years since I was there. I still stay in touch. Mm -hmm. And I, you know, I know well, a lot of the, most of the people I knew left have gone by now, but I just still know a few of the people there now. Mm -hmm. Okay. But I'm not, I'm not involved at all. And I know I've had no contact with NPR whatsoever in at least 25 years or so. Okay. Um, you've written about and talked about before a kind of crisis that happened at NPR around 1976, where there were, um, disagreements over the direction that NPR would go. Um, can you kind of explain that and what happened? Sure. Uh, yeah, that was very important. Uh, we had the founding uh, the founding philosophy of NPR was written by a guy named Bill Seemering. Uh, it's called the NPR Purposes. And it's highly uh, romantic 
in the sense that a world changing kind of view, uh, very inclusive. Uh, it was to be hearing from people, the real people, not the experts. Uh, it was to be highly diverse in the sense of people of all sorts there. Many accents, you know, uh, you know we've got Southern accents, urban accents, etc. And uh, it was to be representative of the entire country. The assumption was that all kinds of people would listen to this because all kinds of people were represented. Uh, that was not realistic. Uh, no radio service serves everybody. And in fact, although we had a variety of people working there, uh, some minority, certainly from different parts of the country, uh, what they all had in common was education. They were all at least college graduates, and most of them were not only college graduates, but uh, like college. You know, they were academic, intellectual kind of people. Mm -hmm. And so... The staff really, although some with some uh, diversity in demographics, et cetera, not really in terms of outlook. And so it was a it's an elite group. And it pr produced programming that appealed to people similar to the folks that worked there. Uh, it was quite a bit younger than it is now. Our average age was something like 40. In terms of listeners, now it's up around 60. Mm -hmm. uh, but the staff was very young. And it was, in this, remember, this is 1960, see, what was it, 68, 69, 70, early 70s, well, throughout the 70s. Uh, this was Vietnam. This was civil rights movement. It was a lot of radical stuff. Richard Nixon was president. You know, we all hated Richard Nixon. Uh, it was, you know, it was just a... Uh, just kind of a youngish radical, not radical in this progressive might be the better way to put it. Radical is too strong, but mm -hmm. uh, you know, it's like your academic grad students. Mm -hmm. That's that's what the staff was, and the audience uh, became more or less like the folks who were producing the stuff. Mm -hmm. And then now, fact, the '76 crisis was uh, yeah, the. the in time, the folks that were working, many of the people that worked there, uh, were wanted were journalists, came from a journalistic background or had journalistic views of what we ought to be doing, and they wanted to be a respectable uh, journalistic organization. Uh, we were right across the street from the uh, CVS office. Uh, we were at 2025. We, they were at 20. Yeah, we were 2025 M and they were 2020 M right across the street. And Eric Severide and Dan Rather and all those folks were coming in and out all the time across the street. And we go to a restaurant and who's at the next table, you know, but Eric Severide. Uh, and it, it was just that you and the folks kind of wanted to become part of that. A lot, a lot of them applied for jobs at CBS. Some got them, most of them didn't. Mm -hmm. But the, the aspirations of the staff were to be become respectable. You know, and so we had this conflict between the, uh, the, the ideal that had been laid out by Seamering, which, as I say, was never terribly realistic, 
and uh, then the desire of many, many of the staff people to be mainstream. And that conflict came to a head in 76 when the management hired uh, some outside consultants to come in and look at the place. And they said, well, look, here's our, here's your mission statement and here's what you're doing. <laughs> they don't match. And that uh, what it resulted in was that I left, um, many, many others left, including the president, the vice president, the, the whole top management was kicked out. And the stations brought in Frank Mankiewicz, who was uh, the uh, a liberal Democrat journalist who said he didn't worry about, he didn't even care about any of that simmering stuff. He just wanted to be the best, the best journalistic organization it could be. And as a result, NPR never quite lost the original concept, but it became overwhelmingly uh, a, a mainstream, a very good mainstream operation. Whereas Seamering has said, why do we always have to start all things considered with what happened at the White House today? Maybe somebody got a job in Philadelphia and that's a big deal for that person. Why don't we lead with that? Mm -hmm. you know, so it was a totally different, uh, you know, Seamering was not a journalist. Was a philosopher, a dreamer, uh, you know, really, you know, wonderful human being, but not much of a journalist. Mm -hmm. Since then, um, you know, the only NPR that I've ever known ha has been that kind of more mainstream. Oh, absolutely, professionalized outlet. You bet. Um, you talk about in your book the critiques from both the right and the left that NPR gets. Um, and there is this critique that as NPR has kind of gone away from its original mission, and part of that original mission was to have it be funded by, mostly by the taxpayer, by, by the Corporation mm -hmm. for Public Broadcasting. Right. Um, and it has since shifted to relying on um, corporate sponsorships and the model of public radio stations paying for syndication for the NPR programming. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. And members, listeners uh, supporting the stations. Mm -hmm. And that's really, to my mind, the driving force is that public radio found out it had a very elite, good audience and a wealth, rather well fixed, really comfortable audience who would be willing to pay for it. And then they could get underwriters, uh, advertisers, if you want to call it that, uh, who were, wanted to reach these people. And you didn't reach them by uh, uh, advertising on Friends on TV. Uh, you had to get to them from in, in, at a lower cost uh, at NPR. So um, what we called it at that time, audience-driven income. The audience contributes the biggest part of it, and then you have advertisers who want to reach those people. Mm -hmm. And that became the, the, uh, the holy grail of build the audience of that kind of person. And uh, you will uh, not need the federal money. And frankly, public radio doesn't does not need the federal money it gets, in my opinion. 
it's and it's partly because we've found a more lucrative way to do things. And secondly, because the federal government never really came through with what was promised. Uh, it was this was part of the great society under Lyndon Johnson. Mm -hmm. And it was to be, you know, Lyndon John was was spending money on all kinds of buying things, in my opinion, they were good things. Uh, and not the Vietnam War, but all the rest of it. Mm -hmm. uh, and so he and then when Nixon came in, succeeded him, he didn't want to be funding this thing at all. And as a result, the promised money was never never came. And in fact, he was trying to eliminate it at one point, but they never quite eliminated it, but they kept it low. And so as a result, if NPR or PBS, for that matter, were going to meet their potential, they had to find other income. And it was viewers and listeners. Uh, in the case of radio, they're um, overwhelmingly listeners. And then uh, PVS was more, you know, big corporate underwriters of programs. And the thing about public radio that makes it different from TV on this account is that it essentially public radio is selling its audience to a lots of people who want to reach that audience. Uh, public television is much more of underwriting a specific program. So Mobile Oil pays for Masterpiece Theater. The, that, you know, so it's program by program funding, mm -hmm. whereas public radio has very little program underwriting where a, a particular sponsor pays for a particular program. Mm -hmm. Rather, they just pay a small amount to reach the audience. You have lots of different ones and no one is responsible for any area of content. And that's really important to people in public radio that if anybody wants, any underwriter wants to drop out, they can, they'll be replaced by somebody else who wants to reach that audience. Mm -hmm. So it's not, when you, you said corporate support and, it, and that's, that's appropriate, you know, an appropriate phrase, but it's in the case of public TV traditionally, oil companies and other General Motors, whatever, sponsor a particular program. And in the case of radio, it's run of station, uh, which you call it where you're, you don't sponsor any particular program, you just throw money into the pot and you get your name mentioned so many times during the course of a week. Mm -hmm. And do you see a connection between the kind of mainstream quality, mainstream quality of NPR's news coverage being able to garner um, those corporate sponsorships? Sure. Um, or is it just a matter of NPR was able to um, develop an audience of millions of people and therefore that's where the audience is, that's where the, the um, sponsorships will want to be put? Or... It, you see what I mean? Is like yeah, yeah it's the latter uh, that it's you have a NPR has accumulated a very desirable audience, and uh, advertisers want to reach them. Mm -hmm. I don't think the advertisers want to uh, influence content. They don't care about the content, mm -hmm. you know. And if that audience were listening to uh, reggae, reggae music, they'd sponsor that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think there 
there's some people critiquing NPR's coverage on the left who would say, well, even if NPR had this level of audience that they do, they probably wouldn't be able to garner certain corporate sponsorships if they were more mm -hmm. uh, anti-corporate, anti-capitalist, adversarial yeah. in that sense. Yeah, I know that argument. And I, I don't really think that's right. I have many things I'd criticize NPR for, but I don't really think that's it. I think, you know, uh, you know Coca-Cola doesn't underwrite NPR because Coca-Cola drinkers, you can reach a lot more of them, you know, elsewhere. Mm -hmm. uh, it's the, you know, it's, it's for people who want to reach that particular audience, I think, who do it. And I think they, I don't think they really care much about the content. Mm -hmm. And to be, and in my experience, and granted, I haven't been involved for 25 years, but uh, we never had, it, that was never an issue. You know, it wasn't that some underwriter says, don't do this, or we want you to do that. It, was, mm -hmm. it just never happened. And that goes for government too, as far as that goes. Uh, you know, we never got, you know, the, the Nixon administration tried, but after Nixon was done, it, as far, I'm not aware of any uh, a governmental attempt. Some congressmen blow off their, you know, they, you know, they shoot off their mouths about these things, but they don't really do anything. So, the 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 key of why NPR is the way it is is, I think that the uh, the audience uh, the they know how to serve a particularly uh, desirable audience. Mm -hmm. And they want to do that, and we'll continue to do that. Mm -hmm. So let's talk a bit about the actual content um, of and quality of NPR's coverage. Um, you you said that there's some things that you would critique about them currently, um, and you talked about the kind of professionalization of NPR that happened. Mm -hmm. um, people on the left, such as Ralph Nader, say that the coverage of NPR is doesn't focus on the kind of um, corporate um, control of and privatization of public services. And they focus more on like what's in the news, like what you said, what's happening at the White House, as opposed to perhaps still important issues, but not what's in like the current news cycle. Um, do, do you think that's a fair assessment? Yeah, uh, it, fundamentally, uh, yeah, the what's it going back to the sort of the politics of the audience and the politics of the staff, which tend to be the same. Uh, socially, very liberal. I mean, they are were sympathetic toward gay rights you know, thirty years ago, before it was fashionable. Uh, you know, women's rights, uh, Black Lives Matter. This is all stuff that resonates with the uh, socially liberal, college-educated people who uh, were uh, you know, who make up much of the Democratic Party and who are in fact, you know, make up much of the public radio audience. 
There is not much interest, as much interest, in major economic reform uh, among those those audiences. I mean, they're doing pretty well themselves. Uh, mm-hmm. They probably own stock in companies, and they're they're not, or if they're not directly through their pension funds or whatever. Mm-hmm. And the it, it's not revolutionary economically. Mm-hmm. I mean. I don't think very many public radio listeners or staff really want to uh, break up General Motors. Not that that's a big deal anymore, but uh, let's let's see who's oh, break up Amazon. Mm-hmm. Uh, okay, it's it's just uh, there's not a, an economic liberalism that goes along quite with social liberalism. And that's true. I'd say mainstream, the mainstream Democratic Party. Elizabeth Warren is an exception, but the is not involved in, doesn't have those kind of policies. The New York Times doesn't really reflect that kind of attitude. Uh, I don't know that it's because the corporations are sponsoring it. It's that the comfortable audience doesn't want to become economically uncomfortable. You know, it's just not something that burns in their souls that, you know, what are we going to do about economic uh, reform, corporate reform? Mm-hmm. Uh, antitrust, you know, who talks about that anymore? Uh, it's, well, maybe a little bit, not much. Mm-hmm. And it's not part of the mainstream liberal uh, I say moderately liberal or center right, center left kind of thing. Uh, it, public radio was never radical. New York Times was never radical. Mainstream media are not radical. The public is not radical. <laughs> so now I think that's, uh, and if you're trying to serve the public or give the public what's interests them, uh, you're not going to get them, make them uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. Well, there's this idea um, that NPR, especially compared to other outlets such as CNN, the the commercial outlets um, mm-hmm. that have really gone down this path of cornering certain demographics and and political ideologies and and having their own base um, th- that is pretty unapologetically partisan. Um, and there seems to be a view that NPR is more grounded and level and, and doesn't really go down that path of, of trying to amp up their, their audience as it were. Um, and so there's this, these notions of fair and balanced that NPR adheres to. Um, but you're, you're talking about how the kind of liberal, well-educated ideology of their listeners and their staff nevertheless has an influence on how they cover things. Um, And do do you think that those notions of fair and balanced um, have any kind of meaning at at NPR? Like, what, what does that mean? Well, that's a good question. What does that mean? I was going to throw that back to you. Uh, but, uh, because 
you can be fair. I, I, I guess I don't even think much in those terms. It's a matter of what interests you. What do you think is important? Mm -hmm. And what do the journalists think is important? And what does your audience think is important? And it tends to be the same. Uh, I uh, So I think that NPR does a fair and balanced job of covering the topics it covers. But does it cover every topic? No. You know, but when it covers something, I think it's you know it's pretty pretty good. It's liberal, no question. Uh, and I think, it, but most listeners who listen to it don't perceive that because they're liberal too. And it just seems right, you know. <laughs> so I don't know that we have much of a uh, uh, you know. There's not in a perception. But it, of it, particularly among those who listen, uh, they think it's great. But I think if you look at it more objectively, I think you see that it covers think. Well, I'll just put it: it covers what interests liberals mm -hmm. in a reasonably fair and balanced way. Yeah. But it doesn't cover doesn't you know doesn't cover what interests uh, right wingers. Mm -hmm. No, it doesn't doesn't take the, their concerns real seriously, and if they does cover them, it's from a negative point of view. Mm -hmm. And I heard you say elsewhere that in NPR's early days, in its early iterations, you guys were um, pretty. You, you know, you said you were you were all opposed to the Vietnam War. And you all hated Nixon. Yep. And you saw yourselves um, not so much as just covering the war, but but kind of discussing and arguing against the war. Right. That's right. Um, and, but, and or just yeah, ideally covering both sides of the argument. But my yeah, this was something that I felt pretty strongly about when I was producing ATC, is that we were not sending another correspondent to some place, you know, now, you know, no point in sending another correspondent to, uh, to uh, the, you know, the, the Soviet invasion. Uh, you know, that, that's, in that case, you know, no, if I send somebody to cover a White House press conference or the press conference in uh, in Saigon, you know, it's just no, no because that's being covered. Mm -hmm. And what was really required and what I continue to believe is debate. Let's argue about the two, you know, what should be done. What are the various courses of action? Uh, and with people who sincerely believe in whatever course of action you're talking about, discussing it. And out of this may be coming just more disagreement, but maybe some compromise or at least clarity about mm -hmm. what the arguments are. And that was always what I, I, I believed in when I was producing the show. And I still believe it. And there's some discussion now at WPR, Wisconsin Public Radio, about changing a number of things in the service. and. That's my big argument. Well, come on, let's let's have comp the old fairness doctrine, which was probably before your time. You know, said radio stations or TV stations 
uh, need uh, are required to present contrasting points of view on issues of public importance. Mm -hmm. That was the phrase of the of the of the fairness doctrine, which was gotten rid of under Reagan. But that I still believe in that, and that it's the discussion of what ought to be done is what we should be talking about, as opposed to here's what somebody is saying, here's what's, here's what happened, this, this kind of stuff. Okay, that's, somebody has to do that, and that's fine, but everybody does that. You know, CNN does a great job with that, uh, but there should be a place where, I, where alternatives are discussed and their debate, you know, contrasting points of view. Mm -hmm. And we tend not to get that on public radio uh, as much as I would think it should in Wisconsin public radio, not at all. This is why, why it's kind of fresh in my mind now, but it goes right back to the, my ATC days uh, that we ought to take the crazy Republicans seriously <laughs> and discuss what they are proposing. It's probably nutty, but we ought to let them say what they want to say, have other people say that they're crazy, and go from there. Uh, and similarly, the, the liberal uh, ideological assumptions ought to be challenged. Mm -hmm. You know, how much do Black lives matter? Well, I don't know. Do they matter more than anybody else? Uh, you know, these are things that we don't talk about. It's just not discussed whether, you know, the assumptions that we make are not challenged. And I feel you know, think you're not going to particularly change my mind about whether Black lives matter. But somebody ought to say they don't or they don't matter any more than anybody else. You know, somebody ought to say that. And you don't hear that on public radio or anywhere else, frankly. Mm -hmm. uh, it's people, you know, they just say their predictable things without real, real clash of opinions. And I, I think that's discussion. You know, it's, and this is, says that, you know, I'm basically a univer overly educated university person, just like most of them. <laughs> but you know, universities are about, should be about debating ideas. And real debate doesn't happen on public radio. And I, I wish it would. Mm -hmm. And I mean, this is kind of a separate topic from just NPR, but in, just in terms of the academy, um, you know, the, like you said, a lot of people who are at NPR are um, very well educated. That's who their listeners are. Um, do you, what is your view of the kind of influence that um, academic studies have on the world of journalism specifically being that that's where a lot of professionalized journalists come from, yep. including at NPR. What is, what do you see that influence being? Well, uh, NPR takes the academic world seriously, as does the New York Times. Uh, the New York Times, as when I make that analogy, the New York Times audience is essentially the same as the NPR audience. And it's uh, and when you go to a university, there's always a stack of well, there used to be you know used to be stacks of the New York Times mm -hmm. you know at the, the student union because the faculty had to get their copy and and grad students and you know it was true when I was there now it's all online but in those days we had papers and the 
it, it, so they and NPR and the New York Times is better than NPR, but actually covering what some of the things are going on in the uh, in the academic world. What studies? You know, a new study comes out and says that uh, uh, you know men are more obnoxious than women, or whatever the whatever the thing is. And we'll cover, you know, public radio covers it, the New York Times covers it, Fox News will get mad about it, but uh, NPR and New York Times will cover it pretty straight. Uh, whether, I, I think what not does not cover come across is the notion of, of real uh, discussion about these things. Okay, so this new study comes out from some sociology department and tells you something, but uh, and if it's kind of a liberal kind of thing, which most of that study stuff is, we report that. But do we really debate it? You know, so, okay, other other academics who say, no, this is crazy. You know, or my data is different. You know, so we tend to take we take it at face value mm -hmm. that okay, these people are the experts. They studied it. Here's their report, and as opposed to discussing what their what were their assumptions you know and really questioning it now that's fine in a seminar uh whether it works as a radio program i'm not as sure but mm -hmm. i think that that's what well a discussion that's what i'm that's what i'm going at and npr is say takes the academic world seriously yeah but not questioning it really yeah and back when you were at npr did you guys have callers come on um, for any any of your news coverage? No. Well, what, this was one of the big arguments that I, uh, in the early days, the mainstream view at NPR was that um, we do not want telephones. Uh, in fact, the engineers didn't, they built this elaborate, beautiful studios which were incapable of using telephones mm. you know you couldn't do a telephone interview uh we had uh, when i became producer of atc we said that's got to change uh we did not take phone calls from random listeners but we did call outs where we'd have find somebody and call them and in fact in the early days when susan stanford was hosting and i was producing uh we had people around the country who were kind of our, our, our observers. Uh, there was a guy named Charlie in Kansas, and Charlie was very—he's a—he's a farmer, but a very thoughtful guy. And mm -hmm. we used to call him every month or so and see what's going on. And we had a woman in Wisconsin—I forgot what her name was—but very, she's a housewife. You know, she. Yeah, you know, that's she just took care of the house like most most women did at that time. Mm -hmm. But once again, a very thoughtful person, and so we had these people we the real voices. And at one proud moment, <laughs> we had, there was a strike going on in Lordstown, Ohio, at the Chevrolet plant there. Mm -hmm. And uh, well, what are we going to do? Should we you know how are we going to cover that? So, <laughs> We got the phone number of a 
the, the, the telephone booth, you know, in the lunchroom at Lordstown. We called it, and whoever answered the phone, we talked to them. Uh, you know, so we did a lot of that. We, I and Susan, and Susan was really important, very influential in the anti-hard news approach. Uh, uh, the, and uh, so we were trying to get, you know, more ordinary people on. Uh, and so we did that, but we never, we did not do call-ins uh, per se. And so they still, well, they'd got to it for a while, but they, they're pretty, they, they don't want that. <laughs> they want authoritative journalists. Right, right. And do you think how, um, is there a way for NPR specifically um, but I guess more generally, American Public Radio, to regain any of that as what you just described, that kind of soul of public radio, to have that kind of scrappy mm -hmm. um, iteration, or, or is it something that's just far too entrenched and mainstream yeah. as it is now? Yeah, it's very good, very big show. I, I, I would love to see more of it. Uh, I don't think NPR could possibly change. It's become so big and so bureaucratic and so uh, ingrown that I just don't think it could change much. And the stations pretty much ape NPR. Now, what uh, we, what I was, no, I was I left in WP Wisconsin Public Radio over about twenty years ago, so it's it has gone far beyond my influences, is waning, shall we say? <laughs> and uh, but we did start a call in a, a big. We had a separate network. We said we uh, we got a second network built. Uh, we called it the Ideas Network, which was to be the kind of thing I've been talking about with lots of discussion and calls and what have you. And uh, the subsequent people who came after me really didn't believe in that. So they didn't quite get rid of it, but they didn't believe in it. And so they were screening the calls and let's, you know, this, you know, so and let's, let's, you know, keep, let's not have so many. And it became sterile. You know, mm -hmm. they tried to make it as sterile as NPR. And I'm very sorry to see that, but uh, that's kind of a lost cause. And uh, so I'm, uh, they're going to be doing some restructuring and I'm trying to get them to do, at least revive some of that. But I don't, you know, they don't have to listen to me. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> they should. But they <laughs> um, yeah, and they need a new organization. I, I think that, you know, Pacifica might have done that, but they're so <laughs> screwed up in their own way that I don't think they'll, they could, they could manage to really get something coherent like that together. Uh -huh. But there must be other organizations that could. But right now, the world is so fragmented, you know, the media world, that uh, it's almost impossible to have an, a, a place that's encompassing more than just a very narrow audience. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm one of like something that's broader, that reaches a variety of people where they talk to each other. And that's, uh, and it's not just the 
uh, NPR's problem. It's the whole media thing. And now with, with podcasts and all that, you can, mm-hmm. you can really reinforce whatever it is you're interested in and without ever any contrary point of view. Right. And, that's, and I, I think that I don't know whether it's possible for anybody to do that. Maybe Oprah could <laughs> you know, on TV. She might be able to do it, but there aren't very many. Yeah, as we were talking about before, that's kind of been the model of commercial outlets of really siloing off particular Mm -hmm. demographics of people. And there there is value to me for an outlet such as the New York Times or NPR that that does have a a very broad, influential readership and and listener audience. for that kind of mainstream professionalized put together mm-hmm. journalism um but you know i think it does leave a, a lot out especially just to, just in terms of tone not even just um what's covered and what isn't covered but um that that tone um it, it's that very even keel kind of right. thing that, driver. uh-huh yeah, that was the, I've heard that, that was not my original, but the, someplace I wrote about the, the influentials of, I don't think of the Linda Wertheimerization of public radio, because, you know, Susan Sandberg, who was before your time, uh, she was lively, and she was New York, she was Bronx, you know, she was raised in the Bronx, and she sounded like it, and she was kind of brassy, and, uh, you know, she laughed, <laughs> on the air uh, and and that was that Linda who was a close friend of hers became host and it just became flat neutral and that is the basic tone of everybody now mm-hmm. uh, occasionally well you know Robert Krulwich, uh he's you know a human being and Scott Simon is sort of a human being but mostly they're not <laughs> I guess just one more general question about the the current state of um, NPR's quality of coverage. Do you think that there is anything, because a lot of people will get most of their news from just one or two outlets. Um, oh, absolutely. And w- what, if you can kind of put a summation on what is a listener of NPR, what is a reader of the New York Times um, missing out on if, if those are their sole news sources? Yeah. Well, they don't understand all the people that don't listen to the NPR or the New York Times. Uh, they really don't have much respect for anybody who voted for Donald Trump. Well, half the country did. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a huge, you know, that's a pretty big blind spot if you're in a trying to run a democracy, work in a democracy and want a functioning society. Uh, you really do have to uh, not only understand, but when, respect. I guess that's what it would be because the NPR Bogart interview. 
some people and but it's like sending a some correspondent to a foreign country you know they're interesting people you are uh that that kind of an attitude and i think it's that's not there are well it's 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 naive and cliche but you need you need dialogue mm -hmm. amongst variety of people and now npr has you know, gone for diversity is their big emphasis now, but it's only diversity for uh, uh, sort of the, what do they call them? The well, there's subgroups in the society who are uh, have been excluded over the years, uh, which would uh, it, but does not include people who voted for Don. You know, voted for Trump. There's no ideological diversity. There's no ideological diversity no absolutely no absolutely yeah. no ideological diversity and what what they are uh, I've said this to a couple of people they don't like it but uh, they are allegedly going for a diverse audience by talking about these issues but their audiences becomes no more diverse they really know more black people watching listening to NPR than there ever were which is not very many uh, primarily because of education. Uh, but but they're really satisfying the academic liberals who love diversity. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so being diverse is actually appealing more to the, the core NPR audience. It's just kind of reinforcing that audience as opposed to actually diversifying the audience. Mm -hmm. And I, I'm sure that's why it came so quickly and so overwhelmingly. It was not resisted at all. Uh, that that move because it, yeah of course we want that that's that's what we do that's what our academic our sociology department is trying to become more diverse too mm -hmm. but but not know, really yeah yeah <laughs> <Not there's>, really. <laughs> um yeah try to try to get a, a kind of neoconservative host on on right. NPR and, right. I think the greatest loss actually was Bill Buckley on PBS because there was a, well, I was going to say intelligent, but that's probably probably true, but uh, very articulate and persuasive and funny. Uh, you know, he didn't take himself too seriously. He was kind of a, you know, <laughs> I enjoyed him, but he would, you know, talk to to Gal, Kenneth John Kenneth Galbraith and other liberals, and they had good discussions, you know, and uh, or Gore Vidal, you know, they were uh, Buckley was a great host for public broadcasting in talking to liberals because he would challenge them, and mm -hmm. quite effectively in many cases, and that, that's what that's what he wanted. But there hasn't been anybody since. Mm -hmm. I would love to have one of my, when I was, uh, we were trying to start up our talk service on WPR, uh, somebody recommended we hire this guy who had just been fired as a magazine editor in Milwaukee. And, uh, and I said, no, I don't think so. We, and we, did, we didn't even interview him. Turned out it was Charlie Sykes who had put on to become now he's a big, you know, an intelligent conservative 
and he was not in when he was he got out of commercial radio in Milwaukee and was not he was just like Rush Limbaugh and bombastic and that but then when he quit and went started doing podcasts mm -hmm. and wrote a, several books about conservatism he's you know extremely intelligent so conservative but very reasonable too you know and I, I wish I'd hired him mm -hmm. But I didn't. <laughs> I was running a public radio station. We don't do that. Mm -hmm. But we should have. Yeah. So, so people who rely on NPR, New York Times, there's there's going to be a um some some negative implications for a democracy, as you said, that that doesn't have these other viewpoints aired. In, in a fair way i think that's fair i think it's true yeah but i'm not sure to say npr did that and actually tried to do all that uh would anybody listen okay you'd make the liberals mad mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah come right. on used to be used to be good used to be tell it tell it straight ahead the truth right and will would the conservatives uh trust enough to come on come over i don't know but i think you're right that, that's basically what i'm saying is we should have interaction mm -hmm. well and i think so part of the argument that i'm gonna try to be making in this article that i'm writing is that it's it's not even so much um a a left versus right conservative versus liberal um, kind of framework, I, I think there is a lot of hunger in, in alternative media for not necessarily those specific left-right ideologies that aren't represented on NPR, but just a kind of less professionalized, more adversarial um, to power kind of coverage that, that isn't isn't found on npr yeah that's um, not it's not sanitized and you know it is not edited not you know it's not so uh, put together you know it's more it more evolves from from what's going on i that's why i like the live call-in idea because it's uh you really don't know what's going to happen and they but it has but even that has to be controlled you know you know you don't want a lot of people just calling in and insulting each other uh you you want intelligent discussion and or at least in informed discussion or and trying to keep that from becoming just a bunch of name calling mm -hmm. is would be you know is important but i think it can be done but i'm we should think of somebody who's actually doing it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. The, the Canadians once, when I, when I was doing, putting together all things consider, but I was, Bill Seemering set me up to Canada for a week or so and to watch what CBC was doing. And they had a much more democratic kind of approach than NPR in those days. And that was still did, but they had, you know, they used to play country music uh, as breaks in their magazine shows, as opposed to the kind of stuff, new agey stuff that NPR does. Mm -hmm. Okay, well, they was trying to say, this is a comfortable place for you folks out in Saskatchewan to to listen. You know, that, mm -hmm. that was a little thing, 
but I, that impressed me that they were trying to be open to a variety of people. Mm -hmm. And uh, I, I, well, I respect with I respect the CBC a lot. They, mm -hmm. You know, I think they're trying. Well, I respect them the way. Mm -hmm. And there is um, there's a lot of talk of lack of trust in journalism these days yeah. and mm -hmm. and and people kind of having a very skeptical eye and, and turning away from a lot of the mainstream journalism do you think that that is any way a product of the kind of professionalized tone yeah the tone turns off a lot of people uh they use language that people don't necessarily understand or aren't, aren't comfortable with. It's not, not language they would use, you know, the Linda Wertheimer approach, you know, they, and they don't even know they're doing it. You know, it's just the way they talk. You know? mm -hmm. They think it's conversational and it is for them. And that, but the social divide is, is, is quite different. Uh, but the, so that's, that's, that's a part of it. I, you know, if you go back to, you know, Walter Cronkite, the most trusted man in America. <laughs> mm -hmm. well, he, he had folks of all kinds of persuasions listening, but there was no choice. I mean, right. you had Cronkite or Huckley Brinkley. Uh, and it's uh, the fact that there's so, our media is so splittered that I'm not sure there can be a place that everybody trusts or feels confident in. Because they'll have lots of people, places that they can go to that are, they hear nothing that's going to be bothersome to them. <laughs> Why be, make yourself uncomfortable when you can be in a comfortable place, be it uh, Rush Limbaugh or NPR? Mm -hmm. Who wants to be uncomfortable? Yeah. <laughs> Who wants to be questioned? <laughs> well, um... solve all your problems? Yeah. <laughs> 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 yeah, I think we figured it out. I think uh, <laughs> we're going to fix NPR. Um, <laughs> now I got to start a new one. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, Mr. Mitchell, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for sitting down. Um, enjoyed this, it. This was really helpful. <laughs> I, I, I can I can shoot off my mouth. And <laughs> you hear it. I don't know anybody else, but, <laughs> but maybe you'll find a line or two you can use. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I, I really appreciate your your perspective. You bring a lot of um, institutional knowledge on this. So this was yep. really helpful. Yep. Yep. But not a prisoner of the institution. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> okay. Okay. It's been fun. Thanks. Cool. Thank you. Have a good one. I will. <laughs> bye bye.